This week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Ziyech and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode, thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. And Jay, it is January, and that means we are, are restarting all of our previous uh, um patron picks uh, they usually cycle ar- around the same time and that means we're welcoming back to the show mr scott Hallgram. welcome back scott hey everybody thanks for having me good to be here as always do we start every year every year with you just about yeah sometimes i'm like the last one of the year sometimes i'm the first of the year but yep this is generally the time of year the the rough part is that um roughly two-thirds of the people who have album picks started in january and february so kind of have to space them a little bit uh oddly in order to make it happen but scott's been with us when when was your first pick scott in terms of your your patreon picks was that mr bungle back in uh i think that i think that was i like knew you were gonna ask us and i thought i need to prepare that and then i just kept forgetting I believe the very first one where I joined was was Mr. Momo. Yes, then Jennifer Trinan, then Loving the, Color. Yep, Masters of Reality, and We Might Be Giants. And then you threw us that big curveball last year. They might be giants, a band that Jay and I really were not familiar with and had not checked out. And um, we learned some things. We learned about ourselves, and we learned about each other. And um, we were so, we were so hopeful and optimistic at this time last year. Yeah. What a different world it was. <laughs> what a different world. So well, that, that, that Mr. Bungle episode came out on January 3rd, 2017. So, yeah, just we were such it, children it, it's then. A whole slew of optimism since I've been on here. We we were so young. I don't even know who that person was. Scott, without further ado, share with the audience your 2021 pick. Yeah, this will be from 1990, uh, Frizzle Fry by Primus. It's their debut studio album. Um, They did the like Jane's Addiction thing where they had an album prior that was like a live album. And it has like five-ish songs that are the same, you know, just live on that album. Not the mm-hmm. album I discovered them on. I discovered them on um, the next album, Sailing the Seas of Cheese. Um, and then, you know, saw them live. So got, so like went backwards and, and uh, followed them for the next couple of albums and then kind of, kind of dropped off after that. So, Gotcha. So for the folks at home, here's a little bit of history on this band and on this record. This album came out in February of 1990 on Caroline. The lineup for this album is Les Claypool on vocals, bass, Larry Lalonde. Is that how you say it? Lalonde? That's how I say uh, it. On guitar. And Tim Herb Alexander on drums and percussion. There are some additional musicians uh, throughout the uh, record. And um, like you mentioned, this is their first studio album. They had Suck On This was released a year prior. That was a live album. And around pretty much throughout the 90s and then had a temporary hiatus in the early 2000s and then again in the late 2000s and then back together. Uh, They've put out... During their time together, they've been pretty consistent. They put out... You mentioned Sailing the Sea of Cheese. It came out in 91. That had the probably the first single I had heard from them, which is Jerry's Race Car Driver. And then um, Pork Soda came out in 93. That was probably the second time I heard them, which was My Name is Mud. Was I think that got pretty solid MTV rotation that 
video. I, I, I feel I, I, I same. I found the monitor as race car driver, and then and then uh, yeah, <clears throat> my name is Mud was huge. I mean, I don't know if it was that popular, but it got tons of airplay. They were on Lollapalooza for that. Right. And that was about the time I started getting like less interested. Um, so I, I, I think they stripped things down way too much for that, but gotcha. Well, then the, the big breakthrough was, I think for the mainstream was, um, the tales from the punch bowl album, which came out in 95 and that has Winona's big Brown beaver. And that had a, like a huge, uh, video that, that was a daytime video. That was no longer an alternative 120 minutes video. That that made it to number 12 on the modern rock chart, number 23 on the mainstream rock chart, and the album overall made it to number eight on the Billboard 200. So that's where I think most people probably, if they didn't already know who Primus were, that was where they discovered them. And then uh, the follow-up album, the Brown album came out in 97, anti-pop, anti-pop in 1999 that's when they went on their hiatus throughout the 2000s and then uh well not throughout off and on and then they returned in 2011 with green Nogahide. 2014 primus and the chocolate factory with the fungi ensemble and 2017's the desaturating seven and it has been basically the same lineup right i mean they had some different players before they recorded albums and stuff but it's pretty much been those three guys the whole time no herb left after tales from the punch bowl and oh he, he did come back. yeah so okay. that's 95 and he didn't come back until the desaturating seven in in 2017 i don't know who this is that that's actually a fact i learned like within this last week so oh interesting okay i'm seeing that uh brian mantia played drums from 96 to 2000 and then there was also a different drummer 2010 to 2014 jay lane yeah um, maybe maybe her came back earlier than what i said but anyway um yeah so they but, but yeah larry's larry and i mean yeah it's and as very, you mentioned very, very rush band where it's like mainly three guys yeah well and it, speaking of uh they opened for rush on the roll the bones tour um they also opened on the Zoo TV tour for I mean this was they were all over the place on as far as tours in the 90s. They opened for part of the Zoo TV tour for U2. They did Lollapalooza in 93. Then they opened for Rush again for Counterparts in 94. I saw that concert. Um they toured for their own rec- they toured as the the head um or the or the you know the the main act uh 94 through 97. Then they did the Horde tour in 96 90- in 97 Ozfest in 99 the family family values tour in 99 as well um so they were pretty busy on the touring circuit with regards to opening for huge bands the festivals and then their own tours um and then they continued that i mean you can see their all their tours they tour with slayer in 2019 um they toured with mastodon in 2018 Clutch in 2017, Tool in 2016. That's those are some crazy. That 2019 tour with Slayer, I remember that because that was like that was like Slayer's final tour. I remember their last show was in LA, yep. yeah. and I was gonna go, except they also had um, that racist guy from Pantera on their bill, so I couldn't. Bill Anselmo. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> just calling him out by name. Allegedly, people. Allegedly, I don't know for the lawyers out there. <laughs> I mean, we've seen the the video of the Nazi salute. You interpret that how you? He he might have just been waving, like Laura. <laughs> I, don't think waving. I don't think it was. He said it was about white wine. I don't think he was telling. Yeah. Um, Jay, let me ask you: When did you become familiar with Primus? Well, you forgot their most important accomplishment. What the theme song of South Park? Oh, that's right. Come on. <laughs> Is there a bigger cultural impact than that? Um, I remember them from Headbangers Ball. So it would have either been this album or Sailing the Seas of Cheese, which was what, the same year but later, correct? Um, but uh, yeah, I remember them getting played a lot. Jerry Wizard's car driver, Tommy the Cat. Um, and just being very different. Um, they were being pushed pretty hard 
I think maybe made 120 minutes too. Like they were the one of those bands that would be played overnights on MTV, whatever the programming was, mm-hmm. um, until they broke through later on in the 90s. So yeah, they were you know part of the early metal scene that was I was still kind of in tune with. Let's get to some of the comments over at Patreon. Kyle Bittner said, fantastic album. The production on the remastered vinyl is amazing, and every strange sound comes through crystal clear, which adds to the chaos of it all. Love it. Jeremy Amen said, worthy album. Can't wait to hear what Jay has to say about this one. LOL. (laughs) Bass and drums are too slappy, and I want to murder them. Richard Waterman. Sorry, could never get into Primus. It sounds like cartoon carnival clown music. Just to clarify, I can appreciate the ability, skill, and musicianship. I can't play anywhere near that level. Just not my thing. Decent single. Gavin, this is probably an unpopular review, but I don't really get how anyone can listen to a whole Primus album start to finish. To which Kyle says, As big a fan as I am of Primus, I can get behind this statement. I have to be in the right mood for them. But when the desire for weird strikes, Primus does the trick. And Phil Fleming followed up, I'm inclined to agree with you, Gavin. They're the quirkiest non-novelty singles band. Friend of mine said it best. Primus is a band you can only eat lunch to, only lunch. And then Steve Musinski said, it took me a really long time to get into Primus, and it kind of happened on accident. I want to say it was around 2010 when I paid Primus tickets, paid for Primus tickets, price or primus ticket prices just to see portugal the man open for them for years people have always said you got to see them live so i figured i'd stay for a few songs i ended up watching the whole set with my jaw on the floor brizzle fry would be the first album thereafter that i would get into so much so that hollow earth my band would go on to cover too many puppies interesting not at the show i saw steven prove it steven we want tapes Put it on a seven inch, Stephen. <laughs> Why do we say it with so much contempt? <laughs> I don't Steven. know. Stephen. Do the dishes, Stephen. Uh, there was a poll. We will reveal the results of that poll at the end of this episode when we uh, share our Worthy Album Better EP and Decent Single results. So, Jay. Tell me one thing you liked about Frizzle Fry by Primus. This record is punchy. Wow. It like hard to believe that this is a 1990 record. Um, I'm listening to the remaster. I haven't listened to the original mixer master, but it sounds really, really good. Um, So, I mean, it does, it, it, it's a great production for this type of band. So if you haven't or promise, I'm assuming most people haven't, if you haven't, it's very staccato. It's a lot of like triplets, very percussive, you know, bass playing is all kinds of crazy stuff, you know, tapping and muting and slapping and popping. And, you know, so there's a lot going on dynamically. So um, I thought the, the production of this is, does the band a a lot of justice in terms of um, it doesn't sound overproduced, but it's all crystal clear. And even when the whole band is playing, you can still hear, you know, these super punchy drums that are very dynamic. I mean, the drummer, if you, if you ever looked at like a big complicated drum kit and thought like, what the hell do you do with all that stuff? Like what are those little symbols for all those little drums? And like, he's, he uses all that shit on this record. So like, all kinds of ride, you know, ride bell accents and roto toms and different dynamics, double kick drum and like all kinds of crazy stuff. And all of that comes through crystal clear, punchy, big sounding. Um, I, I think once I got sort of pulled in by that, just the overall dynamics of it and just curious to listen, the way I would describe it when I say punchy, I mean like, if you've ever been to a really great sounding club show, you know, where it's got a nice big PA, everything's mic'd up great. And it just sounds like in your face and like it's thumping your chest. Like 
even when I'm listening to this on headphones, it has that kind of feel to it. Even though I don't have a subwoofer in the room, I still have that like reaction to just this big live club sound, um, which I think is really cool. Once I got that kind of pulled me into the record, um, you know, to really like, actively be engaged in what's going on and, and enjoying parts of it. The guitar playing, I think, was the part that I had forgotten about with this band. I always think of them as being, you know, Les Claypool's bass playing and him sort of being the face of the band and the personality and then the quirky lyrics and kind of like the storytelling character type thing that he does. I'd forgotten how amazing the guitar player is. Um, and even the drummer, like, because I think the drummer played in Guns N' Roses for a while. So I was like aware of him. And But I was really, I think blown away by how cool the guitar is on this record um he's able to i mean he's he has the he's smart enough to know like okay there's bass player doing a ton drummer's doing a ton so like he's able to kind of float in and out where he'll lock up in pit, uh, bits and pieces with the bass but he'll also kind of like float out and like sit above everything and almost sound like like you would almost like if you were to put horns on a record, like the way that you would approach that, you know, the way it kind of like sits up to, on top of everything. Um, there, there's moments where the guitar really does that. Um, he can shred, he can do like weird, noisy, angular things. Um, he does some melodic stuff, you know, kind of pull out the themes that are there that in these very complicated bass parts, he kind of pulls out on the guitar, like what the melodic idea is. Um, and I think the tone is killer. Like it's not a, um, it's not a very nineties tone. It's kind of just a classic, like cool, fuzzy amp sound. Um, there's some bits where he'll get a little shreddy and he'll, you know, have a little bit more reverb on it, but it's just a really good, um, honest guitar tone, which for his style of playing, which is very technical, I really like a lot. You know, I, I it helps you understand like what's going on on the guitar when you can hear a little bit of the grit and the rawness of it, um, as opposed to it being like super glossy and like, you know, metal can go in that direction very easily, especially when it gets progressive. Like it's so clean and precise and pristine and delayed out and stuff that you don't know what the hell they're doing. But like he uses this really kind of raw, gritty tone um that kind of pulls you into the plane but then also just creatively there's so much going on here guitar wise um to the point where like i almost think like they don't even need vocals like there's so much going on musically here and the guitar is doing so much melodically that um it almost acts like a vocal so those are some of the things i liked about it what about you tim get into that there's a quote by robert christow the dean of of uh rock journalism he described this album as don knotts joins the minutemen okay. <laughs> which uh made me laugh for like a good couple minutes when i just sat and thought about that um i'm not gonna lie i struggled <laughs> with this record um, I hear what you're saying about both the production and the guitar playing um, in terms of being highlights and utilizing their the guitar in, in ways that are best suited for the playing of, of Claypool and Alexander. I, there's a lot of, it makes me think of, um, you know, it's funny that they toured with Rush because it, and they actually start the album with a little Rush homage with the, 
beginning of YYZ um, that that I heard that immediately that that hi hat pattern um, because I think of Russian the same way that like sometimes um, you know the drums and the bass are are pretty busy and and there are points where the guitar or keyboard that is going on is fairly droney or or is is sort of sitting on top of what's going on rather than being the the lead instrument um and like you said that it i mean you can just sit in this record and pick out every noise and nook and cranny and every weird thing that's going on and just i i having so <laughs> here's a funny story um when i was in college and my sister was in high school she was dating a guy and um he was into music i didn't know him but i had come home from my you know, for the summer and my birthday's in the summer so my sister got me with the help of her boyfriend frizzle fry for my birthday and i think i gave it like one listen and then sold it to the record store in in 1993 or 4 whenever that was because i was i just did not i hadn't i hadn't heard uh selling the sea of cheese or i, I don't i don't know if pork soda was out yet either um so i that definitely um got got me in trouble when i when i brought I my CD collection home and it wasn't there and uh, my sister was like, didn't I give you a Primus CD? And I was like, oh, yeah, I sold that immediately. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to, I, I mean, I'm trying to understand 1993, Tim, what would have made your sister think you were like Primus? I don't know, because I didn't listen to anything like that. That's what I'm saying. I was That's in the, like. I've seen the mixtapes from the, from the 80, late 80s, and early 90s. No, I that was. I mean, maybe because I was into like Public Enemy and Tribe Called Quest and and like some hip hop, and I expressed like I did for a short period of time, like the Red Hot Chili Peppers when Blood Sugar Sex Magic came out. Uh, I, I just like the videos on MTV, um, and I yeah. think I got the CD used in yeah. college. But I was I was done with them by the time I saw the next album like i heard sure. one hot red hot one hot minute i was like nah i'm not into this anymore and then they became like repetitive and annoying and and i could see that that leap for for her then i have i i i have an appreciation for the singles like i definitely was i knew all the singles from that we talked about earlier and um played them at the radio station but i have never this was the first time i've ever listened to a primus album all the way through that's a statement. Yeah, I think um, I'm, I'm not uh, I, I'm not surprised by these responses. I think um, if you do listen to other Primus albums all the way through, you'll you'll thank me. I think um, I think this is the one of theirs that holds together best as an album. I think um, for um, Stealing the Seas of Cheese, it gets pretty weak after the main two signal singles, which in those two, I think I like just about better than anything on here. Um, and then after that, I'm, I'm really surprised to hear that Tales from the Punchbowl did so well because I find that to be a very uh, experimental album. Um, it's a single. Yeah, that's got to be it. it. It's it, and it's what was that? Ninety-five. So yep. people were still buying. Yeah, so people were still buying CDs based on one song, right? Um, sure. I saw them on I saw them on that tour. I think opening for Soundgarden. I can't remember. But um, and I had kind of started to fade on Primus by then. But to your point of Larry, the guitarist, doing what he does, like all the things you said, and then also him kind of being like the last instrument that you discover, that it took me till that long and seeing them live to Stephen's point on Patreon. And yeah, like my dad just dropped out. I was, it was basically a Larry Lalonde clinic for like 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you know, in that quality where, and that quality where um, Larry's the last one to find, Larry's the last one that you notice how great he is. I think that also points to, like, this band has a, I mean, they're, they're Rush fans first, and they're, like, their band second. 
the first time I ever saw them in 19, might've been 1992 on the, it was on the Salem, the Seas of Cheese tour. And I saw them at First Avenue in Minneapolis, which is across the seat, street from Target Center where the Timberwolves play. And and the same night Rush was playing on the Roll the Bones tour uh, at Target Center. And Les was pissed at all of us because he, he was literally angry at us for being at his show. He's like, you guys know Rush is playing across the street. <laughs> um, so yeah, and then and then I think um, one of the, one of the other things I really like about about Primus that you touched on, Jay, was that you know how it, how it's punchy and you get that big sound and you can really like feel it. It feels like it's live, even when it's recorded. Um, I definitely feel that with this band. Like they they get me physically engaged in a way that um, you know a lot of bands thirty years ago and, and fewer bands now do. But still, when I when I hear them, I hear the drums and the bass and they're contrapuntal, right? Like they get they get. Yeah very baroque and, and, and polyrhythmic, like, uh, um, I, uh, and I, my body just really starts to, starts to move no matter what I'm doing. Um, so I like the complexity. Um, I had not noticed, uh, until this listen that in a lot of ways, they're a jam band, uh, and that's where they, uh, excel. And I can definitely, I think in ways that 30 years ago, I couldn't appreciate, I can appreciate how, people would not be able to, uh, enjoy, enjoy Primus. Um, yeah, I think the, uh, the impression I've had of this band and I hadn't spent time with a record. So I, I just have heard singles over the years. Right. And some of those I've heard a lot. So I always viewed them as like having a very particular sense of humor because the singles are like, so I don't know the word I use is novelty. Like they're, characters yeah. with quirky and videos and like they usually mention particular people and tell a story about that person and it's a weird story and it was with a weird singer and voice body humor yeah 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 and it's like single oriented like it's fairly concise and so i'd always thought well that's well, you have to be like into that type of humor to like get this band and i'm, I'm not quite getting the humor part of it but for me with this record, I think the way why it works better is because, yeah, it's it's got that quirky, weird sense of humor to it, but it's more subtle and almost like under, it's buried a little bit more. It's not like up front and probably the reason why they didn't have any singles off this record that were big. Um, you know, yeah. it's it's a layer underneath of subtlety as opposed to like being in your face and like, okay, if you don't get the joke, here's the joke, you either get the joke or you don't. Um, and this feels like I was surprised it was, yeah, I guess more jammy, um, more, I guess like angular too. Like I, 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 I'm aware of like the polyrhythm thing and like the technical complexity and the weird time signatures and all that. But I, I was kind of surprised by, particularly with the guitar, just how creative it was from a, like playing with like, being very melodic but then also being like very atonal and odd and like noisy you know there's some stuff on here that solos and things that are just crazy sounding um so i didn't expect that and it's i think a little richer and more i don't know interesting than i than i expected it to be um and I, that sounds weird because it's been so weird yes they're interesting but i mean like beyond just a one-note, like, goofy singles band. Yeah, there's, there's, there's plenty of bands that had that, uh, I think, exactly right, that novelty single that I never listened to another song of theirs because I was like, yeah, okay, I get them, you know? Yeah. Um, like Green Jelly, 
uh, King Missile with detachable penis. Like I never, maybe those bands are great. Yeah. I, I have no idea because I was yeah. just like, yeah, I just threw them in the, the novelty song bucket. And I think if I, like I got to Primus when I was 15 or 16. And so I think I was like, that's a pretty funny uh, potty humor song. I'm going to go listen to more. Right. <laughs> but like, yeah. if I hadn't found them until a couple of years later, maybe I'd have been like, you know, same reaction as, as I had to King Missile or whatever. Yep. Yeah, and it could be like this album in the catalog, like the timing wise, it's it's early enough that they're still like, you know, trying to find their thing. They're not locked in any particular idea at this point. And then also just from a production standpoint, you know, it's it's pretty raw and live sounding, which is what I'm reacting to um, first. But the remaster, I'm, not, I'm shocked this is a 1990 record. It does not sound... Um, in any way, like a record we would listen to from 1990, it sounds either, I mean, it sounds modern um, in every, in every possible way. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I don't, when you say remaster, I don't know if you were streaming or whatever. I listened to these first coming back to them on, um, on Apple music and I wasn't enjoying it very much. And so I went back and I listened to the, CDs I have ripped onto in flack format, and I was like, "Oh yeah, yeah, now I really like this." So, um, yeah, but might might be even worth checking out. Some yeah, I'm I'm listening to the the Cuba's like CD quality, okay, screen, and it's just labeled Frizzle Fry, and in parentheses it says remastered, and the date is 2002. So, yeah, that's when they added that 14th track. Um, oh, okay, cool. Which is, what? Yeah, which is a residence cover and. You know, I'm pretty sure. I definitely got a residence vibe. He's he was basically in the residence. I mean, they're on that re- residence album y'all reviewed. You know, he's pretty clearly on there. Um, I, it's weird that they even keep that a secret because to me, I'm like, oh, that's less cool. Hmm. <laughs> um, Jay, what doesn't work for you on the record? Uh, well, I find I'm find most of the vocals on. I'm not into his voice. I'm not into like lyrically anything he's doing uh, the, the couple times i do like it is uh i think it's groundhog's day he does like a i think it's a david lee roth impression <laughs> i don't it sounds like that to me like he just does a couple like yes that sound exactly like david lee roth yes um but vocally i mean not, i'm not getting a lot from it um i, I can almost do without the vocal tracks even be down here I, there's some to his credit um, he d- does have the ability to find some like earworms and like too many puppies is a good example of like, he just finds that phrase and just keeps delivering it. By the end of the song, you've got, it's locked in your brain. And a day later you're walking around the house going too many puppies, too many. <laughs> it's like, it's in there. Um, so I, I, you know, obviously he's, he's written some hit songs or, you know, at least some radio singles. So he's got that ability, but I, I just don't like the vocal very much. Um, I think the second half, the I want to say second half. I, I think after Toys Go Winding Down, that's probably the last song that I'm really like super engaged, and I start to lose interest as the record continues. Um, particularly the, I would say the last one, two, three, four, five, four to five songs uh, starts to just hit like diminishing returns like in terms of like either super repetitive riffs that they jam over interludes um or just meandering songs that don't really go anywhere um it could also just be fatigue for me on the sound of the band you know um an hour of this is is kind of a lot to take in but there's sort there's i think a combination of both his singing style and then the just the format of the band it loses a little mileage after a while like you know these do these triplet pattern kind of things and then they build songs around those with the second part and once you start to get a formula of them doing that it's like okay well this song's gonna go like this and i know they're gonna repeat, keep repeating that so it's the songs where they kind of break that formula that's a little bit more expansive a little weirder like to me like um Mr. Know-It-All is my favorite song on this record. 
where it kind of gets out of that formula a little bit and you you get this like right out of the gate this really interesting guitar part and it's a little less focused on like establishing that bass riff um like some of the other songs are um i also thought was interesting um i was able to kind of pick up some of the the influences more on this record than i have in the past so i tend to like the songs where i can pick up on that little like oh that little fill is very rush like or i could hear getty leasing in that or playing that bass part or even like fizzle fry and the toys go winding down like i can hear a little bit of sabbath in there for, for them being a heavy band i've always like never thought about like where are they where are they getting their influence from because they're so weird and unique but you can kind of hear like these little bits and pieces of like either way a vocal is done or like toys go winding down has this weird bass part that eventually kind of evolves into this heavy gallop and i'm like oh it's almost kind of like i can feel like a sabbath thing in there somewhere so like the songs where I could latch on, I think, to a little bit of like some other reference helped quite a bit. And the ones I couldn't, um, not so much. So that's that's some of the stuff I didn't didn't work for me. I, I just generally str- I mean, I struggle with the vocal like you. I, I have a just a general um, difficulty with with any sort of. I guess, super technical sounding music um, in terms of, you know, when people talk about, you know, the great guitar players and they talk about like Cetriani and, and Steve I and these guys that are like lightning fast and can play a million notes. And it's like, I, I have zero interest in that style of playing. I would rather listen to like one note get bended, you know, for a minute by Neil Young than listen to, you know, five minutes of noodling that's technically proficient, but I, it, it just doesn't connect with me. And I think that's where I struggle with, with the, and the rush comparison is a good one because like, I like rush, but I, there are times when they just get too deep in the weeds for me. I, I, I tend to lean more like the rush greatest hits is like the best thing for me because it's so song oriented and I struggle mightily when uh, there's a lot of a lot of playing and and I just like getting lost in the amount of notes that are happening. That's just it. It you know, and it was funny. Is like I liked those songs back in the '90s, but I think I've I might have like gotten like my ears are more brittle now or something where i can't i just can't take that much of an assault on my my ears anymore and so many rapid fire triplets and 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 slaps you know i think uh i think who was it somebody was saying that they're expecting you to call it slappy j but i'm probably the one who's going to be more critical in the end in terms of of just the the barrage of, of notes that are thrown out there. Um, Cause I found it very like, I, I was good for the first couple songs and then it was just like, okay, I need to take a break and step away. And then now can continue on with the album. And I couldn't were, do it in one pass. Like I had you to were break dizzy. it up. I was, <laughs> I was getting like, I was getting ear fatigue after like two or three songs yeah. or three or four songs in a row. And I had to like back away and and turn it turn it off a little bit so i just couldn't well, I, keep track of what was going on i was like what is he what's going on in this song yeah. um but part what, of, i mean I'm, I'm not a technical musician either like i didn't i've never learned to read music and i never learned by being a studied musician so a lot of that just like flies by me in a way that i can't comprehend yeah i mean I, i've i've listened to a lot of progressive and yeah that's their thing like this is not I, I think uh, to address the slappy comment, like yes, I've been critical of other bands in the past for that. Um there is a there's a tightness here between what the bass and the drums are doing that and there's like I guess again this punchiness that it goes from being like this pitter patter slappy thing that's like off on its own 
like here's like usually when I'm critical of that, it's like there's a bass player overplaying, right? And like not connecting to what the drummer's doing, and it sounds thin and not punchy. But to me, like when I I'm listening to this, this sounds like again like if you've ever seen a really tight like heavy progressive band live in a club. I mean, this is what it's like. It's, just, it's like full body experience of like being pummeled. Um, so to me, it's like just a different, right. It's put together in a way that's, uh, way more with way more force, I guess, than some of the other bands that maybe I've been critical of with, with, with the slapping and the popping. Um, but yes, this is definitely, uh, a lot to, to absorb. Well, what, what was the audio quality that you were listening to? I was listening to the remaster on Spotify with my okay. studio headphones. So, so well, it, we know it wasn't the headphones, but um, <laughs> it, I, uh, I don't the sponsor exact, the show. We don't have to. <laughs> I had the hey, exact I, I'd like to keep on their good side. So when next <laughs> Christmas rolls around, I can get a new pair. Tim's getting free headphones out of this. I'm get, so. I get free headphones <laughs> every year. I, uh, I had the exact same experience, actually, with just like getting worn down with this and all their albums as I went through recently when I listened to it on Apple music. And again, that's why I went to the lossless, but I mean, you might, you might find the same thing. I'm not going to say that that's the reason you experienced that, but just FYI, I experienced well, thing. I, I will say like, I don't know for sure, but I, I can imagine that I, I don't have the, the world's most expensive setup, but I put in some thought into like it and I could definitely imagine if you don't have the clarity and sort of the what's referred to in the autofile world is the soundstage, like the separation, um, it could become just like a, a cacophony of pitter patter yeah. and screeching. So I, I definitely could see that. Uh, and this also, I would think this is probably a better speaker album than a headphone album. Like I use open it back headphones would sound more like speakers but i can imagine like this is mixed like i said like a live club like if you've got some good you know bookshelf speakers or floor standing speakers you know old school receiver kind of setup, this, this album is likely best heard that way because i think it's going for that super punchy in your face kind of feel and uh some of that nuance is important i think because otherwise it can just sound like probably confusing well and i don't have a problem with slappy bass to be to be honest like i like listening to larry graham and i like, like listening the slappy to Bo- the bass bootsy collins i like it in in the funk setting because it tends to be more groove oriented and i f- like this was more you mentioned about being more staccato yeah. and being more um locked in with the drums and i think that that worked against that that didn't work for me because there was no um break in in terms of like when you hear like bootsy collins in parliament you know he's doing a whole bunch of crazy stuff but then like the drums in him are sometimes like way off from each other but they come back on the one they're always coming back on the one and there's room for them to breathe so like bootsy will be just you know all over the place and this is like in like you mentioned it's in the more progressive side if you're going to compare it in the in the rock vein and that's also the problem that's why i've really never gotten into progressive rock like when we reviewed dream theater for that one uh, uh episode years ago for uh, did, the, did we the review new, dream theater it was for a new albums uh, okay episode uh, i was gonna say the, somebody somebody needs to request some 90s dream theater yeah, we haven't gotten images and words yet, but uh, I'm surprised. Hey, have Courtney put that in. That's like our favorite <laughs> record. It's got to win the poll. Come on, Richard Waterman. I know. Um, but that's why I've never really gotten into like that sort of progressive music. The only what the only stuff that's really worked for me has been like the Nightwish symphonic stuff because it's so bombastic and so over the top that it it becomes this other thing all right so you're more trans-siberian orchestra than yeah i'm more trans-siberian orchestra (laughs) you said it you're Uh, you're into progressive as long as they're doing the nutcracker i I want some tso (laughs) doing doing the nutcracker 
So, you know, yeah, you said, you know, it's, it's funny. You said you didn't really like his voice, which is also another thing that turns some people off of rush. Like some people can't get past Getty Lee's voice to even engage with the rest of it. And so like, it's just funny that there's, there's all these, all these parallels to rush. I didn't even know. I mean, I guess it makes sense. I, well, it does make sense. I didn't realize they were such big Rush fans. I, I assumed that they liked Rush, but I didn't realize they were like yeah. mega fans. So when that was the first thought I had when I listened to the record was like more of like a um, realization. Like, oh, this is this generation's Rush in, in a weird yeah. way. Yeah. In a, yeah. Yeah. With the, the, the sillier, yep. the sillier version of Rush. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't, um, it says, this is not, um, we're not I don't, maybe we are maybe we're getting close to our, our picks but you know it was not hard for me to um it was not hard for me to get down to a more reasonable lp length um and also like if i were forced to like i could make you know an even you know, like more ridiculously strong ep out of this you know um but i i, I think um i think the fact that you don't like some of those later songs jay might be a fatigue thing i mean they do get into some um, I mean, I, I'm not, you know, I don't want to be here to tell you guys what you do and don't like. I mean, I don't, it doesn't matter. But um, <laughs> Herald of the Rocks is is the centerpiece of the album, which is you know, it's basically the last song. And it is too long and it is a little too silly. Um, but it's it's basically the the pinnacle of, of what they're doing at, at this time. Um, and you couldn't put it anywhere but last. Um, I would probably cut like some of the earlier ones. Like John the Fisherman is just not necessary it's better on suck on this groundhog's day is great i love it but it's five minutes and it doesn't get good until it's three minutes in so and that's another one where it's better on suck on this in part because those first three minutes are all about tension and release in kind of subtle ways and so when they get to the release you hear the audience you know be like yeah and kind of engage with the story as he's going and it it adds it's everything it doesn't it just it falls flat it's stale like all the carbonation is gone um with its appearance on here so so i definitely i feel the i feel the fatigue comments like just i mean i i felt them just you know physically myself over the past week um so i, I think there are some things they could have done I think there could have been some resequencing you don't really need those interludes except for the last one two to five kind of is the nice bookend thing is the uh is the end of uh, Herald on the Herald of the Rocks? Is that an ode to Spinal Tap Stonehenge? No, I've I have never been able to figure out what the hell is happening in that song, except it's, it sounds to me the whole thing seems to me like an ode to Bruce Springsteen's. Um, is it Spirit in the Night, the one where they ride up to Greasy Lake and there's like seventeen different characters whose first names all get mentioned once and they run into the lake naked. I don't know. It it seemed like a it seemed like a song about a drug trip and hanging out with people you hardly know. Gotcha. What specifically was the Stonehenge reference? Did they There's like, a, I think it's towards the end. It gets quiet. And he does like a spoken part. And like when it gets oh. quiet and he starts speaking, I'm like, oh my God, yep. this sounds exactly like the Stonehenge intro. I got it. I got it. <laughs> in the end, Flomper and Greeny finally succumb to the ways of hell. It, it, it absolutely could be. Yeah, I never pieced those two together myself. I, I expect him to start talking about the Druids. <laughs> the Druids. <laughs> <laughs> um scott you mentioned the uh you're you were tipping your hat towards your your rating uh there i want to share um our poll but first we need to share our ratings so jay do you have this as a worthy album a better ep or a decent single 
Um, well, I've got, uh, let's see here, three, four, five, six, about six or seven songs. Um, it kind of feels like this is a intended to be an album, meaning like there is an arc here of, of some kind. Um, so I hate saying like, to pull part, parts out, but I also feel like just from a kind of fresh set of ears, first time hearing it, that I get the the gist of it and I'm not fatigued. If I can get to about maybe pudding time, um, which would be nine songs. So I'm, I'm probably at a stronger, a better strong EP um, or 70s album. Uh, the Rush album. Or a Rush album, exactly. Yeah. Um, is this Crest of Steel, or somewhere is this, uh, permanent? <laughs> in the yeah. six to nine range is probably to me ideal for this band, um, considering the amount of notes that you hear. <laughs> like, if there was a total, a total, total note, a total tally of notes, <laughs> maybe that's the way that albums should be uh, uh, determined how long they should be. You get exactly uh, 10,000 notes, album. however you want to spend them. <laughs> low albums would be even longer than I love low. Um, so I'm, I'm at a better EP. It's hard to say that like, you know, 14 songs in the current version at 55 minutes um, that it's, you know, super successful. Um, I think it's, it's closer to an EP for me. Uh, I'm going to have to... I haven't done this in a while. I'm gonna have to go with Richard Waterman, and this is a decent single for me. I'm probably gonna be going with uh, "Too Many Puppies," the um, Hollow Earth cover, and um, the uh, the Toys Go Winding Down is my B side of that. I I, I don't mind Mister Know It All, um, so I guess if you wanted to make it a a double seven inch, um, that would work as well, but um. Yeah, I can't. I can't get to a, a an EP length for this, unfortunately. So this is gonna this is gonna enter seaweed territory for me. I think uh, I'm gonna get some nasty letters from people. I don't know, the comments, the comments at least on the on Patreon, I agree with you. Now. Yeah, I cut um, I cut Groundhog Day and John the Fisherman, which I mentioned earlier. Um, I mean, I don't even I don't even count that 14th track on there, which they put on in 2002 as, as part of it. And then Sadlington Willoughby, I don't need. Um, but that that takes away nine minutes and still leaves f- like 42 minutes, which to me is like the perfect album length. Um, yep. If I had to, I, you know, I, you know, if if a record level executive came to me and said, you know, you got to make this, you got to make it an EP, I'd get rid of Michael Malloy and and Spaghetti Western, and I'd cut To Defy the Laws of Tradition, which I like, but has no business being six minutes and 41 seconds and adds to the fatigue that, you know, you look at it, you know, you look, you get into Mr. Know-it-all, Frizzle Fry or whatever, you know, whatever in that range. And you're like, I'm only on track five, you know, like, holy crap, because the first song was, you know, six minutes and 41 seconds. But um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's an album for me. Like I said, I'd, I'd cut three tracks. But. The uh, to, to defy the laws of tradition, the, the thing I did like about it, though, was it um, starting off on that, bass with the chorus effect was totally unexpected for me like i expected we like be we'd be popping and doing bursts right out of the gate <laughs> and uh <laughs> to have it kind of come in with this moody chorusy thing um yeah was kind of cool well scott the majority of patrons agreed with you 77 percent went with a worthy album just 15 percent better ep and eight percent decent single in our poll so i was wrong <laughs> oh there's no you right or wrong. You, can be- there, you know that there is no right or wrong and and honestly um we probably should have gotten to primus a lot sooner i mean this is a band that was important to the 90s um well, and that's so, kind of been that's kind of what I base my picks on. I don't I didn't say it this time because I feel like I 
I feel like it came across the wrong way last time, but like I try to find stuff that I like that has has also maybe like been quote unquote missed. Mm -hmm. Oh, we've got holes. We've got we've got gaping holes in our in our review catalog that um, we need to uh, address. I mean, we've you know, we were talking about it. In the last episode, we haven't hit a British, like a, a Britpop album in a long time. Um, and that was a huge part of the 90s. We haven't hit, uh, probably done any shoegaze. You know, that's Madchester. We haven't touched that really at all. Um, I mean, we have, some, we have some pretty big holes to film. We really haven't gotten into some of the, the 90s metal, the alternative metal of the 90s. Uh, you know. Wow. We we've just did the primer for a lot of that stuff. I think that right. was one of the one of the bands that influenced a lot of that. And and to your point, Scott, like even if you know you think you know Primus, this is probably the record. Would you say to go listen to just to get it? Maybe. Yeah, it's it, it's it's my favorite. Um, I also think Stale on the Seas of Cheese is good intro. Um, they that's one where especially in the front part of the record they they cut things down to more song type length and are a little bit less experimental um, and yeah. focused on melody. Um, so that that's a good intro, but if, I mean, these two, these two are my favorites. I think this is for me. And I think for a lot of Primus fans, Frizzle Fry is kind of the peak. I have to say, uh, when you were talking about the catalog, Tim, at the beginning of the history of the band, just kind of looking at their album covers, I've always thought of them as having like, pretty good album covers in terms of like they're unique you usually know it's them um it looks appropriate for the music except for the brown album <laughs> um if you go take a look at the at the selection there it looks like somebody just got um adobe illustrator is learning how to use it <laughs> um it is absolutely terrible about that yeah yeah, it's like the only one that's not the kind of claymation thing. Right. Like that was their thing. Like didn't the videos, some of the videos in claymation oh, or something? At least. Yeah. I think yeah. So yeah. Yep, it's horrible. It's a it's terrible bad. cover. <laughs> it's so bad. Because everything else is so interesting and it has like yeah. it doesn't clearly... feature the logo either. Like they're pretty good about like once they got that logo, they pretty much stuck with it and did did different variations of it, but it's the same logo except for that record. It's just, it looks like Helvetica crushed. Like somebody just smushed it. That is awful. Yeah. How did that get made? You're the one that always points out bad album covers, aren't you? I do. I do have a lot to say about that. <laughs> I'd kind of like, uh, like I said, I'd kind of not, I, 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 the only, the only post 95 album I've listened to is, and I don't even know if it's an album. It's the desaturating seven. I think some places. Yeah. It's the one that came out in 2017. Yeah, and I like that. That's very good. So I, at some point, you know, I'll go back and, right? I mean, we're all going to have all kinds of time to listen to all this music someday, right? <laughs> but. Well, we're all going to spend our retirements. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Scott, thank you so much for continuing to support the podcast and, and, and coming back and sharing all these uh, wonderful albums over the years that you have. And we look forward to... Uh, your future picks and, and joining us on future roundtables. You were just here last week and maybe you'll be here next week. I don't know. Maybe you just show up <laughs> every week. What will, what will our lives be like one week from now? Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Um, want to remind folks if they are interested in joining the union, they can do so by going to dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. Just like, I should have mentioned this at the top. I will edit it so that it sounds like it's at the top. Welcome Patrick Secor, who has joined us at Patreon recently. I think he even joined our Discord channel as well, where there's hot topics being debated, like Audio Gear, Pearl Jam, Canada. Should it exist? We don't know. Should we just absorb it? Should it be just part of Wisconsin? Yeah, there were something like a hundred or some posts today between like the Pearl Jam catalog and uh, Canada. In Canada, 
Canada took up a big discussion. That's pretty awesome. Yep. I have some opinions. Um, I have some opinions. I can help out. On Canada? <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> More about the Trail Jam. Uh, <laughs> and how they should be ordered. Oh, yes. Oh, there was lots of ordering of, of albums. Which which ones go first and, and which albums? With drummer, lots of drummer discussion. Uh, Jay bringing hot takes left and right. It's like he's he's pulling them out of the oven and shoving shoving right on the plates for everybody to, to digest. My, my last question was, uh, so how long until Pearl Jam has their own cruise? <laughs> oh yeah, they're, they're definitely in that. I want to remind folks that Patreon is also where you can go to vote on the polls. Uh, if you are a member and, um, that they show up each month for us to, uh, you know, record an, uh, an episode on. And then also, uh, it's where our eighties episodes live. And where our box newsletter resides, if you are a member of the Patreon community, you get to check out our box newsletter, or you can sign up at digmeoutpodcast.com to receive the newsletter in your inbox every weekend. New reviews and our release calendar so you can stay up to date on all the things that are happening in 80s and 90s music relevant to today. Uh, Lastly, if you're enjoying the podcast, please consider leaving us a positive review over at Apple Podcasts. For JM Tim, we're out. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Dig Me Out.